Hey, welcome to our midweek. If you're here for the first time, we want to welcome you. We're going through the book of Genesis right now, so where you want to turn is Genesis 39. Genesis 39. We're going to continue in a series called Joseph's Journey Wrapped in Grace. And Joseph will be the center of all we talk about until the end of the book. And I was just going to say something about Wayne. Wayne is a w true warrior for Jesus Christ. Uh, he's out there all the time in uh, places where it's not always easy to evangelize. And he's on the front lines and he is excellent at sharing with people and has a great heart for Christ. And I know that there's others that do that same kind of ministry. So please remember Wayne and the evangelism team when you think about praying for people because they are on the front lines and they do a great job. And the only thing I would just say in regard to some of the things that Wayne said, other than a hearty amen for sharing Jesus Christ, is I find myself crying at the mall all the time. <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but anyway. <laughs> That's just a joke. <laughs> Genesis 39. We're going to talk about temptation tonight, and... Uh, if you don't feel like you need any teaching on dealing with temptation, you might want to go ahead and just leave now. Uh, but I think we, we all could use that, amen. Father, we, just, uh, we come before you. We're just glad to be together again. And we thank you for your grace. Your grace is perfected in weakness, Lord. And uh, we can see how you work in our lives and infuse us with your grace. Give us the grace that we need, the favor that we need from Almighty God. Grace is a beautiful uh, theological term. It's charis in Greek, and it, it really speaks of your benevolence, your goodness, your favor, unmerited favor from God to us. And we're so grateful for it, Lord. And at, we're going to need it tonight as we talk about temptation and look at some really uh, maybe even tough things tonight about, you know, this, this scene will remind us of maybe victories we've had, but even failures. And Lord, we're not here to be condemned. We know there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But we are here to be exhorted, certainly, and we're here to be challenged. So whatever you want to say to us, give us ears to hear what the Spirit would say to the church, your church, purchased with your blood. We lay this time at your feet, and we pray that in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Genesis 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, Genesis 39.1, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. So as I mentioned, Joseph becomes the focus. We had one chapter in between that dealt with Judah. That was Genesis 38, and we saw that scene. And now we return to the story of Joseph. And Joseph was certainly the favored son as we've depicted in the graphic behind me, he was given a coat of many colors by his dad. And he was the favorite son, probably because he was the firstborn of Jacob's favorite wife, his true love. And so Joseph was a, a young man of favor, but jealousy sprung up in his brothers. And he shared a couple of dreams that he had about uh, how the family was going to bow down to him. And it probably wasn't that great of a thing to share, but he shared it. And uh, they didn't take a, a liking to it, of course, and so they plotted to kill him. Genesis 37, if you take a peek back, we see um, what happened to him. Genesis 37, verse 36, the last verse. It says, Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain 
of the bodyguard. So the story gets picked up now in Genesis 39.1 as we have the break in Genesis 38. And we pick up the story that Joseph has been taken down to Egypt. Now Joseph will go to Egypt and Joseph will be there and God will work all things together for good. And we've suggested that the theme verse for the book of Genesis could well be Genesis 50.20. What you intended for evil, God intended for good to bring about the present result, and to save many people alive. I would submit to you, that's a pretty good theme verse for the book of Genesis, especially the life of Joseph. Joseph was a young man in a Jewish household. We know Jacob became Israel, and they were very much monotheistic, very much, you know, they had had encounters with God from Abraham, Isaac, to Jacob. God was imparting truth. He was revealing himself to the family of Israel, which would become the nation of Israel. So for Jacob to be sold into slavery was a very, very difficult thing on many levels. One, he was betrayed by his own family, and here's where he becomes a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll pick up some of the typology as we look at Joseph's life. He was betrayed by his own, betrayed by his brothers, if you will. Uh, sold for, you know, in, in, Jacob's, uh, in, in Joseph's case, he was sold by his brother's to these uh, slave traders, and in Jesus' case, sold for 30 pieces of silver by his familiar friend, as we talked about on last Sunday. And so here is Joseph. Uh, Joseph, of course, went to a place hundreds of miles away that would have been not only a shock that he was betrayed by his family, but a shock culturally speaking as well. He didn't know the language. He didn't know the culture. He didn't know the religion. He didn't know really anything about this place. And if you've done any study on the uh, Egyptians and you have studied, for example, the book of Exodus, you know that they were polytheistic. There were pyramids everywhere. They, they had this uh, fascination with the dead. They had a God for everything. In fact, when you get into the book of Exodus, you see that the ten plagues that God uh, put on the Egyptian people were all plagues against their gods. Everything to them was, the go was a god or a goddess. They had a sun god. They had a god of the sky. They had a god for the Nile. They even thought the Pharaoh was a god. And so this is the kind of culture that Joseph is now thrust into. And he's put into a house that we would call a house of, uh, of an aristocratic family. This is the captain of the bodyguard. He has certainly a very high, elevated position in the nation of Egypt. A, a place of favor, a place of power, a place of opulence. We find out in this household that there are many servants to Potiphar and to his wife. And we're going to watch Joseph elevate in that household. But before we see him elevate, we need to think about how much he's already been through. When this all went down, he was only 17 years old. Can you imagine being betrayed by your family, going into Egyptian slavery at 17? Can you imagine how different his life had become? He was the favored child. He had a blessed existence. Even though there was tension among the siblings, he still was a blessed young man, blessed of his father. And now he's a slave in a foreign land. Nobody cares about him. How much of an adjustment period did he have to have to try to figure out the language and the culture and the polytheism and all that was going on? I'm sure part of his thinking was just survival. But Joseph was a man with a different spirit. And even though he was sold into slavery, he decided that he was going to do something with his life, even though he might not have understood everything that was going on. There's an interesting psalm, and that, this psalm applies 
Psalm 105, if you take a peek with me, Psalm 105. This psalm applies, I think, to his jail experience, although you could make application to when he was sold into slavery. Psalm 105, pick it up at verse 16. Psalm 105, 16. It says, And he called for a famine upon the land. Psalm 105, 16. He broke the whole staff of bread. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. Psalm 105, 17. They afflicted his feet with fetters. He himself was laid in irons until the time that his word came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. Now Joseph had had a few dreams, if you turn back to the book of Genesis, and those dreams may have encouraged him during this time because Joseph was told that people were going to bow down to him, even his own family members. That certainly had not come to pass. He knew these dreams were from God. He knew he had gotten a word from God, but his circumstances were anything but this. He wasn't in a place of power or prestige. He was in a place of bondage and slavery. So sometimes we look at the promises of God and we, we wonder, well, you know, things are not great for me right now. Maybe it's, it's tough sledding for you and you're wondering, well, how does God's plan work out in my life? Well, think of what Joseph had to face. He had to face a tough task. But he was a man of high character, a man where his ethics would shine. In fact, you would have to say that in terms of just biblical characters, people in the Bible that we're able to study, Joseph is like, as one writer put it, like a skyscraper among those who are even in the Bible. A man of great honor and faith in times of very difficult testing and temptation. The key to Joseph's life is found in Genesis 39.2, and it's true for us as well. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 says, The Lord will never leave us or forsake us. And the Bible says in Genesis 39.2 that the Lord was with Joseph. And if you're a Christian, the Lord is with you as well. It doesn't mean that his circumstances were all perfect, but the Lord still was with him. The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. We're reminded once again that Joseph's in a foreign land, but he has become a successful man. And we'll see the measure of his, of his success in a moment. I guess as, as successful as you can be as a slave or a servant in somebody's household, that's what Joseph was. He made the best of his situation, even though his situation was not the best. We tend to look at our circumstances sometimes as Americans, and we want everything to align to be perfect. And if things are a little bit of out, out of whack, it's sometimes hard for us to have a positive attitude. Have you ever told yourself, man, I'm going to try to go through this next week, and I'm going to do all things without grumbling or complaining. Ever tried that before? How well have you done? Not good. I heard an honest confession here in the front row. We can catch ourselves, though, right? And, and sometimes when we, when we make a decision like that, I think we can even challenge ourselves and see how we're truly living. That's not the measure of everything we know. But Joseph became a successful man, and the key to his success was the Lord was with him. You see, you can be successful in ventures in life. You can do a lot of things. You can get accolades from the world. But if you don't have success in God's eyes, ultimately you're nothing. You could have the world applauding you, and the world will applaud you as long as you please them. Have you noticed? You can go from hero to goat in a microsecond in the world's eyes. They'll forget you, 
put you off to the side, put you out to pasture, and they'll move on. That's kind of how the world is. But God does not leave or forsake his people. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him, and I want you to notice in verse 3 that unbelievers even see the favor of God in our lives, and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. Seven times we're going to get a form of this blessing. Seven times, the number seven is an interesting number, the number of perfection or completion. And seven times in Genesis 39, we're told that God put his favor on Joseph or the Lord blessed him or others saw that there was the favor of God on him. This word favor in verse four is the word for grace in the Old Testament. It's a Hebrew word that's spelled C-H-E-N, transliterated into English as Ken or Chen. And it's a word that speaks of God's goodness. In fact, if you look at the word, it's often used in the Bible in these cases. The word is used of Noah in Genesis 6-8 that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It's used of Abraham in Genesis 18-3 of Lot in Genesis 19-19 when he was rescued by the angels. Of Jacob before Esau in Genesis 33. Of Joseph in the eyes of Potiphar in Genesis 39-4 and then repeated in uh, 39.21, God's favor upon him. Israel's favor in the sight of the Egyptians in Exodus 3 and 11. Gideon uh, having the favor of God in Judges 6.17. And Ruth before Boaz. Ruth finding favor in the eyes of Boaz in Ruth chapter 2, verse 10. In the Hebrew picture language, uh, grace is uh, defined this way. It's the fence or to protect life. What does grace protect us from? Well, ultimately, grace protects us from the consequences of sin and death. For it is by grace that you have been what? Saved. Grace is what saves you. God saves you by grace. We stand in grace right now because God decided to save us. And so we have this fence of protection in our lives we're protected from the evil one. Ultimately, the battle has been won, but we still have our battles to face, our small skirmishes, I guess you would say. Uh, the word in Hebrew has the idea of to lean toward, to give compassion to, even to stop and make camp with. And so this is the favor that Joseph was getting from God, and it spilled over to other things in his life. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but in my own personal journey, I entered full-time ministry um, around the year 2000. And prior to that, I worked at various companies, just like a lot of you do. And I, I was uh, working as a, a feeder in a, in a printing industry, putting paper on the back of a printing press. And then I sold printing for a company. But I noticed something, that when my life was right with God... Uh, God wasn't making my sales calls for me, okay, so I don't want you to get me wrong here. I think God will honor hard work, but I also saw the favor of the Lord on my life. Anybody with me here? I saw how he was, he was blessing me. I saw how my character and just my witness at a company could affect many lives. And that's not me sounding my own horn, that's just me saying God was working in my life and my presence at a particular company was just impacting other people just because of who I was. Because I tried to share my faith with people. Because I tried to show the kindness of God uh, to people along the way. And so Joseph was this, uh, this kind of person. He, he left an imprint on people. I just want to ask you a practical question. What would you say your imprint in your spheres of influence is right now? 
How are you impacting the company that you work at? How do you impact your family and friends? How do you impact places where you may volunteer? Do people know you're a Christian? Have you left the fragrance of Christ in that place? By your work ethic? By your character? By even taking stands that may not be popular with other co-workers or students, but you've decided to make a stand for Jesus Christ. I'll tell you what, folks. You can have an impact wherever you are if you decide to take a stand for Jesus Christ. And so the Lord was causing this prosperous life to happen for Joseph, even though he was not where he wanted to be uh, in terms of his location. The Lord caused all that he did to prosper. He found this favor. And he, he, that is Potiphar, made him overseer, middle of four, of his house, or over his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. What happened to Joseph is Joseph became what is essentially a steward in the house of Potiphar. A steward, as defined in Scripture, is one who manages his master's goods, takes care of his property. Ultimately, what a steward does is for the sake of his master. Joseph really had no personal belongings per se, but he managed what belonged to his master. And in much the same way, that's what we do as Christians. Ultimately, we are not going to take anything with us. You all know that? Naked we came into the world, naked we're leaving. Even if you're dressed in a fine suit in your casket, all of that's going to wither away as well. We've had people buried with all kinds of stuff. But you're not going to take any of that with you. What you're going to leave behind and what you're going to take with you is what you did here for the kingdom of God. Amen? That's what's really going to matter. And so notice that he was put in charge of all these things. 1 Corinthians 4.2 is a good verse to think about stewardship. It is required of a steward that he be found, what's the word? Faithful, or some translations say trustworthy. And that's what Joseph was. He was a trustworthy man. I don't know how many trustworthy people you run into these days, but I'll tell you this. If a person who's running a company, uh, an employer, finds a trustworthy person, he's going to want to hold on to you. He's going to want to trust you with a cash register or knowing that your ethic is a high ethic. So here's what happens. It came about, verse 5, that from that time he made him overseer in his house over all that he owned. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. You can almost picture Potiphar sitting on a, a lounge chair drinking one of those uh, frilly drinks in Egypt with an umbrella coming out on the top and just going, man, Joseph's a man. <laughs> Joseph, I don't have to worry about anything. This guy's got it. He's taken care of. I'm being blessed. The household, the estate, whatever it was, was doing better. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. That's trust. And with him there, he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Not sure why that's mentioned there, except that there may have been some sort of uh, way that they uh, prepared the food or some ceremony they went through, I don't know. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. I think other versions say Joseph was well-built and good-looking. Now, Joseph not only was being blessed by God, but he had it going on on the outside. <clears throat> he was good-looking. He was well-put-together. You say, well, why does the Bible mention things like that? Well, there's a purpose. The Bible's going to mention Joseph's handsome stature or good-looking appearance because 
he's going to draw the attention of another in this household because of the way he looks. And we'll get there in a second. Like Laban before him, he said, the Lord has blessed me because of you, because of Jacob. That's Genesis 30, verse 27. So Potiphar understood that Joseph's presence was blessing his household as well. Joseph being called handsome in form and appearance is a double accolade, by the way, only mentioned in, uh, in the case of one other person in Scripture that I know of, and it is Rachel, his mom. She, in Genesis 29, 17, is called beautiful in form and appearance, and so is her son. So I think you'd say that he had good genes from mom. And it came about after these events, verse 7, that his master's wife looked with desire. If you have a New King James, it says, she cast longing eyes at Joseph. And she said, she wasn't very subtle. She said, and there's some adult content in here, just as a heads up. She said, lie with me. Or if you have the NIV, come to bed with me. So all of a sudden, as Joseph is uh, growing and prosperous, and I'm sure he's getting many attaboys from Potiphar. You're doing a great job. What a great worker you are. Hey, I'm going to give you a 25-cent raise per hour. You're doing great. All of a sudden, he starts walking around the house, and Potiphar's wife starts to look at him with, uh, you might call them the goo-goo eyes. She starts giving him the look. You know the look? And Joseph, I'm sure, began to notice. She cast longing eyes at Joseph. Now, we find out that since Joseph was a good-looking guy and he was in a foreign land where apparently sexual promiscuity was rampant and even uh, sexual sin among those who had servants was rampant, she began to cast this longing look upon him. She began to look at him differently. And... Uh, you know, sometimes when, when something like this happens, we know the difference between a look and a look, right? And sometimes we can play, you know, a little bit ignorant about it, but in the end, she wasn't making, you know, there was, there was no hiding it. She was looking on him with looks of lust. And then she followed it up with, come and lay with me or come to bed with me. Sexual temptation is an area in life where many, many people fall. Uh, it is running rampant in our society. Some of you have looked at the latest stats on pornography and you know, the adult film industry, and we, we could make our list right now. It's, it's, a, it's a touch screen away for so many people. They're in bondage right now to sexual sin. And Joseph is in this household, and he's being propositioned by this woman, and she is in a very prominent position. She is the wife of his master. He's, a, he's in a pretty awkward spot. Some years ago, as I was working for this printing company, I was an account executive, and I was calling on companies, and uh, I had to tell my boss one day that, hey, I have this, this great opportunity, and it looks like we can sign a deal with this client, but I said, this woman is making passes at me all the time. And so I'm not sure my boss was a Christian. There was no outward signs that he was. And my boss said to me, well, just start telling her about Jesus and it'll be all right. <laughs> Pretty funny, huh? Just tell her about Jesus. I think you'll be able to quench that. So here's Potiphar's wife. Now, why was she doing this? Well, was she a, a woman who, with loose morals? It's quite possible. Maybe she was a woman who propositioned all kinds of servants. We're going to find out there were multiple servants 
in this household. I have found, I'm sure you have as well, that when someone has a lifestyle in this way, when they're very forward and loose, they tend not to just be doing it in one sphere of life. Now, somebody may start there, but I'm saying if someone is this, that has this kind of mindset, they probably do this in more than one area of their life or with more than one person in their life. It's been suggested that it was possible that Potiphar was a eunuch, that he had been emasculated, because what happened is that when you uh, elevated to a position like this and you served a a pharaoh or a king, sometimes to keep you away from his harem, they would literally emasculate you and you'd become a eunuch in the service of that uh, king or whatever. And that would keep you away from his harem, but it would also keep you focused on your work instead of being, you know, uh, uh, focused elsewhere. And so it's been suggested that maybe if he was a eunuch, maybe that's why Mrs. Potiphar, we don't have her name here, so we'll just call her Mrs. Potiphar, why she was uh, so apt to want to, you know, maybe find uh, solace in Joseph's arms. We don't know for sure. This is speculation, but she is very forward. And she says, I want you to sleep with me. Now, can you imagine being Joseph for a second? He's probably still 17, 18 years of age. We know that hormones rage at that age. He's been abandoned by his family, sold into slavery. He has every reason to be bitter, every reason to be resentful. I wonder how many nights he went to bed in tears, soaked his pillow with tears. I wonder how many times he asked the big questions, the questions that we all ask about God and where is God in this and what's happened. We know he cried and begged for his life when his brothers first were putting him in the pit and considering what to do. He was crying out to them, asking them not to do it. I'm sure he's had a lot of tough moments. The Bible doesn't tell us about all those moments, but You know, if you want to look for reasons to justify a fall to sin, he's probably got them, don't you think? He can say, well, look, you know, uh, I don't even know where uh, God is in all of this, or uh, my family's left me. Nobody even knows I'm here. I'm so far away from home. Maybe he could find some comfort in her arms. Maybe, Maybe Joseph could say, hey, finally someone's going to pay a little attention to me, attention to me, and maybe love me. You know, we have all of our lists that we can make when we want to do something dumb, right? We know that this is against God. We know we have clear instruction. But sometimes when we're in tough situations and temptation comes like a flood, we can find all of our reasons why we should give in to temptation. You know, it's easy for us sometimes when somebody else is on the precipice of making a dumb move, we warn them and we say, don't do that. But then we're faced with the same, the same situation and sometimes it's hard for us to, to uh, you know, not give in to temptation. Joseph had his list. Uh, maybe he could have said, well, this will be good for my career. Maybe he could have said, you know what, if I don't, Uh, acquiesce to what she's saying. If I'm not with her, what will she do to me? You know, he was in a tough spot. And so, uh, here's what he does, though. He refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, look at verse 8, With me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. He has put all that he owns in my charge. There's no one greater in this house than I. And he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. Joseph responds to this, and you know, you got to be impressed with a young man of this kind of character. And he he says, no, I can't be with you 
Your husband has given me charge over everything. He's made me a steward in this house. Have you noticed that sometimes when you're going along in life and you know Joseph has now, even though he's gone through this, this devastating tragedy with his own family selling him into slavery, now he's, he's gotten a taste of success. He's getting the blessing of God, and now, all of a sudden, when things are going good, have you noticed you come off a spiritual victory, you lead somebody to the Lord, you're feeling good about your Christian walk, and all of a sudden, the devil with the blue dress on comes calling, right? I think it was Greg Laurie who told the story that, you know, uh, he had become a Christian, and some of his friends began to warn him that temptation was coming, and to watch out, because the devil's on the prowl. And he said this beautiful girl, I think a girl in high school, came up to him and said, hey, what are you doing this weekend? My parents have this cabin and they're going to be away. And, and she's basically, basically propositioning him. And he went, he had a, like an epiphany. Oh, this is what my friends told me about. <laughs> and he knew it was temptation. And he said the reason he knew is because girls normally didn't proposition him that way. Beautiful girls coming up to him that way. So he's like, ah! You know, when Jesus was baptized, the heavens opened and the Father spoke and he said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. If you look at the end of Matthew 3, the record's there. The Father affirms the Son. He says he's pleased with him. And immediately after that, we move into Matthew 4 and Jesus is tempted three times by the devil. Right after a great spiritual high, you could say, right after a great victory, right after uh, affirmation and even accolades, here comes the devil and Luke 4.13 says the devil's always looking for an opportune time. And I'm sure you've noticed that opportune times for the enemy to come in like a flood is often when we're either coming off a victory and feeling like we can do this and, you know, we're good to go, maybe a little bit prideful, or maybe when we're feeling weak. The devil's first temptation to Jesus is in the midst of his fast. And he said, if you're the son of God, if that's true, if the, what the father just said, you are his beloved son, if you're the son of God, then turn these stones into bread. You ever been there before? Yeah, why should, why should I be hungry right now? I'm supposed to be a child of God. I'm supposed to have the blessing of God. And here comes the enemy. In an area of need, food, eating. Look, let's be real in the church. We know that we all have a drive to, to be with someone. If unless we have the gift of celibacy, we are going to have a drive to be with someone in that way. It's a natural drive. A God-given drive. God made it up. We, we hesitate sometimes in the church to talk about sex, but look, God thought this up. It's God's creation, but it is to be fulfilled in God's way and in God's time. And look, this is where the blessing is found. You go and you just look at reports and interviews that they do on people that have lived together and then people that have waited. I'm not saying God can't redeem and restore any situation. But I'm saying God's way is always the right way. It's always the right way. And the world uh, basically throws mud at that constantly. And the church, look, we're not... We're living in the world. We're not to be of the world. Uh, we're in the world, but we're not to be of the world. But look, we, we're affected by this stuff. The enticements and the temptations come. And it's, it's true that there's a struggle for men and women in the church as well. And this is a great response. He says, look, my master, he's given me all this charge. The only thing that he's not given me is you, because you are what? Look at verse 9. You are his wife. 
Now, people sometimes say, well, does it really matter in other cultures that are not centered in the God of the Bible? Does marriage really matter in those cultures? Apparently, it does. Apparently, in Egyptian culture, when a man marries a woman, another man ought not to be messing with that woman. Oh, but wait a minute. They believe in a thousand or a million gods. Who cares? Uh, Marriage is from the Lord. That was a quiet amen, but it's still all right. God created this, and he created it for mankind. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. By the way, that's singular. And so Joseph says, how then, end of nine, could I do this great evil and sin? Now, you would expect that he would say right here, and sin against Potiphar. But he doesn't say that. He says, how can I do this great evil and sin against who? Against God. Now, she might say, which God? Which God are you talking about that you'd be sinning against? But Joseph says, my God, the true God, I don't want to sin because my sin, if I sleep with you, my sin, first and foremost, will be vertical. When we sin, brothers and sisters, I know this is a little hard to take sometimes, but when we sin, we sin against God. Every sin that we commit is against God. David, when he had sinned with Bathsheba in Psalm 51, and he's, he's at a point of confession now, and he's, he's going before the Lord with repentance and cleansing, he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what was evil in your sight. I want you to notice Joseph says something that would be totally unpopular to the people of his day and the people of our day. Can you imagine if a friend of yours came to you and said to you, hey, I'm considering having an affair with this man or this woman. And you said, how could you do such a great evil? They would think that you're like a Puritan or something, right? We don't talk about things in those terms anymore. That sin could be categorized as great evil? And we don't even call things evil anymore. I think some people are not even certain that Satan's evil anymore. Give him a break. He's misunderstood. Maybe he just needs some puppy therapy and he'll be all right. Sorry, that's just personal commentary. To say to someone, this would be a great evil, I would challenge you, do something this week when you study your Bible, go home and do a concordant search on the word evil. If you have a Bible program or if you have one of the old books that's a concordance, you will be blown away with how many times you see the word evil in your Bible. The Bible calls things evil. And we have a verse in Isaiah 5, uh, I think it's Isaiah 5, verse 20, that what people call good, what people, what is good, people call evil, and they call evil what? Good. We're so confused anymore. We don't even know what to call evil anymore and what to call good because, as somebody put it who was being interviewed on Focus on the Family today, she put it this way, former lesbian, got saved in 1999. She was a professor at Syracuse University. I'm trying to think of her name. Anybody here they interviewed today? Anyway, um, she came out of the lesbian lifestyle. And she said one of the problems is that she was around some of the things of God And she said, one of the problems that we have in the church today, listen to this, is we have a low view of sin. 
That's profound, isn't it? We have a low view of sin. Anymore, we can just dismiss sin. We, we kind of, well, marginalize it. It's not that big of a deal, you know. The world is so confused. The world, you know, think about it. Egypt is a type of the world. Joseph's right in the center of the lion's den. He's right in the center of where they've made their own moral judgments about what's good and evil. They appease gods that sometimes are appeased by these terrible uh, festivals that they hold and so forth that have unspeakable things as part of them. And here's Joseph, sold into slavery, propositioned by his boss's wife. And he says, I can't do this. I'm not going to sin against God. Would it stop you in your tracks next time to know Let's say that you have a habitual sin pattern in your life, and some Christians are struggling with those. I know in my first five years as a Christian, I had a lot of baggage. But the next time that you're faced with a decision as to whether or not you're going to do that thing, what if you thought next time, you know what, my sin, first and foremost, is vertical. My sin is against God. Now, I know I'm a forgiven man. I know that my sins are forgiven in Christ. But I know that every time I make a decision to disobey God, there's always consequences that follow. I don't, I don't uh, stop being loved by God or any of that, but, but, I, but there's a price to be paid. And for some people, it's a, a price of trying to get back where they were before they fell on their face. There's Christians that, that are stuck in cycles where they know the thing that they do is wrong, they do it, and then they go through this mourning and repentance to try to get back where they were before they did it. We're getting real tonight, aren't we, brothers and sisters? And you get stuck in this pattern. And it's like, well, at what point are you going to take the off-ramp and realize that if you keep walking down that same road, that same bump you keep getting, you're going to be there again. And so Joseph's faced with this stuff. The book of Proverbs is filled with all kinds of stuff about making decisions like this. Let's go there really quick. Proverbs 3. Proverbs 3. So, Psalms and then Proverbs. Proverbs 3. Look at verse 5. Proverbs 3, 5. You all know it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will do what? He will make your path straight. Now look at verse 7 of Proverbs 3, right after what we just quoted. Do not be wise in your own eyes, Proverbs 3, verse 7. Fear the Lord and do what? Turn away from evil. Look at Proverbs 4, verse 23. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you a deceitful mouth and put devious lips far from you. Let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right nor to the left. Turn your foot from what? Evil. There's that word again. Look at Proverbs 6, verse 16. There are six things the Lord hates, yes, seven, which are an abomination to him. He hates haughty eyes, 617, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that defies wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to what? To evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. Look at Proverbs 6, look at verse 23. Proverbs 6, 23. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is a light and reproofs for discipline are the way of life. To keep you from, there she is, from the evil woman, 
from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her catch you with her eyelids. We had a pastor, uh, we had a Bible study a while ago, and he said he was taking his son through Proverbs, and his son said these words, Why do women keep coming up over and over again in the book of Proverbs? Warnings about women and the adulteress. And the pastor dad went, uh, well. And then go to, uh, if you want to read the rest of that, you can read it on your own time. But it, it warns you about what's going to happen if you go the way of the adulteress. Uh, if you look at verse 33, just to pick up the thought, it says, Wounds and disgrace he will find. His reproach will not be blotted out. And then Proverbs 8.13 is a great uh, foundational verse for all Christians. It says, Proverbs 8.13, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance and the evil way, and the perverted mouth I hate. Let's go back to Genesis 39. So, if you do that concordance search in your Bible, you're going to find all kinds of commentary. And Joseph saw if he would do this thing, it would be a great evil against the Lord. He didn't want to do it. But you know how temptation works. It doesn't just come once. So you could say, and maybe you've been there, maybe some of you, you've gained some victory in areas of your life. And, and look, I just want to give you some hope tonight that I think it's a progressive thing that happens for Christians. I think as we, we get saved in a moment by God's grace, but sanctification takes time. We all know that, right? So we grow and mature, and then we learn you know, how, to, how to resist temptation and, and how to deal with sin patterns in our life. So look, it, it can take time. But here's the thing. Joseph makes this statement. We don't know all the details about how she responded, but it came about 39.10 back in Genesis. As she spoke to Joseph, What's your Bible say? Day after day that he did not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. Every time he passed her in the household, he's folding towels and she would walk by him. Hey. And she was making these advances, constantly barraging him with temptation. This is how temptation sometimes works in my life. Sometimes things are calm, and I'm thinking, man, I'm doing great as a Christian. And then all of a sudden, for some reason, you guys resonate with this? It seems like temptation is pounding at my door 24-7. Ding dong, ding dong, <laughs> ding dong. Sin is crouching at your door. And sometimes it's hard to not open the door to it. Day after day, she pounded on him. And he did not listen to her. He tried to tune her out. But where could he go? He's a slave in this household. He's basically signed a contract forever. You want to talk about, you know, you work at a company, you can quit a company where there's a difficult person there. Somebody making advances at you at a company, you could say, well, I'm not going to work there anymore. I'm going to turn them in. But this is the boss's wife. And day after day, what do you do? Tell him? Oh, by the way, your wife is making passes at me. How well is that going to go over? And so he just is dealing with it. And day after day, she comes and tempts him. Delilah did the same thing to Samson. You remember, Samson kept getting a little closer to the secret of his strength. And this is Judges 16, 16. says, she pressed him daily with her words and urged him so that his soul was annoyed to death. Kind of like that kid who keeps, can I have it, can I have it, can I have it, okay, take it, take the whole box of candy, I don't care anymore. And all the parents said, amen. 
She plumbed every angle to get at him. She, she you know, made the subtle moves and the not-so-subtle moves, and it happened one day that he went into the house, 11, to do his work, and none of the men of the household was there inside. I think she set this whole thing up. She was both persistent and scheming, and she caught him. The Hebrew word in verse 12 is a word that can speak of violence. It has the idea of seizing. She caught him by his garment, something like a long T-shirt that he would be wearing like a tunic. And she said, go to bed with me or sleep with me or lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. Now this is what the Bible teaches. And Joseph is the practical example of fleeing youthful lusts. Flee from these things, O man of God. And Joseph ran. Right? Sometimes the best thing that you can do is run. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Run to the nearest exit. Get out. The woman who is the adulteress in Proverbs 7 seizes him and kisses him with a brazen face. And she says, oh, I've done all these religious things. I have the colored linens of Egypt on my bed. I have myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. My husband, he's not at home. He's gone on a long journey. And she says, come on, let's, let's, let's uh, be together for the night. With many persuasions, he entices her. He entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. Suddenly he follows her, Proverbs 7.22, as an ox who goes to the slaughter, or as one who is in fetters to the discipline of a fool until an arrow pierces through his liver. As a bird hastens to the snare, so he does not know that it will cost him his life. Have you ever known a situation like this that ends well? Have you, think about how this can go. Like, is this, you know, the, the first, uh, people get captivated by, you know, someone takes a liking to them or pays attention to them. But they, they rarely, when they act on something like this, think about the long term. They think about, you know, 10 minutes of pleasure, but they don't think about the fallout. And so she wasn't letting go, and he tore himself away from her. And when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she was not a happy camper. She called the, to the men of her household. Maybe she had made a decision that if he doesn't, uh, you know, get with the program this time, then that's curtains for him. And she said to them, she's a conniver and a liar, see, he has brought, and I think she's talking to her about her husband, he has brought in a Hebrew to, uh, to us to make sport of us, to laugh at us. And he, he came into me to lie with me, and I screamed, what a liar. Man. Sometimes, you know, you get a manipulative person and you resist them, you don't give them what they want, and it gets even uglier. It came about when he heard that I raised my voice and screamed. I wonder if anybody else heard that scream. That he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. Mrs. Potiphar could see she was getting nowhere with this one. Is it from, uh, what's it from when it says, Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned? Is that, uh... anyway. It's true. It's not in the Bible, by the way, but it's true. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. She said something like this, just wait till Potiphar gets back. Can you imagine Joseph? Why do I continue to do the right thing? Can you imagine? I've resisted this woman. I've, 
I've told her I don't want to sin against God, and now I'm in trouble again. He doesn't know which way this is going to go, but I'll tell you what, if you were a slave and you were accused of raping your master's wife, you're dead. Probably no two ways about it, you're dead. So she spoke to him with these words. The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us, now she's blaming hubby, came in to make sport of me. And it happened as I raised my voice and screamed that he left his garment beside me and fled outside. She uses the garment now as evidence. Now it came about when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him saying, this is what your slave did to me, that his anger burned. What do you think he was really mad at? You know, he does not kill Joseph. He sends Joseph into the king's prison, which is an indication that I think he knows. And don't you think he knows how she is? You think he has an idea what his wife's about? He's already seen the noble character of this man. He's put everything in his charge. He's entrusted everything that he has to the care of Joseph. Now he gets this story. And do you think that he might not have noticed what was going on? And now she shares this story and he's angry. And why do you think Potiphar might be angry? Let's assume for the moment that he knows that it's her and not Joseph. He might be angry because he's losing Joseph. <laughs> this guy's been such a blessing. This place has been a gold mine since he came. And you, <laughs> I don't know if this is the conversation. <laughs> you messed it all up, woman. I don't know. So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail. The place where the king's prisoners were confined and he was there in the jail. Can you imagine the, the prison door shutting and Joseph sitting down maybe? I'm sure it wasn't the best of accommodation, accommodations. 1500 B.C. Egyptian prison. Sure, it's not, you know, five-star accommodations, right? Can you imagine sitting down for a minute and going, Oi, what do I have to do? First my family, now this situation. It's not worth trying to be good. You ever been there before? Remember in the, the, the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, when George Bailey gets Clarence as his guardian angel? He goes, you're the kind of angel I would expect to get, right? <laughs> and then he's in that bar. Remember that bar scene where he gets slugged by the teacher's wife, and he goes, that's what you get for praying, right? Slug in the face. Well, we've all probably been there before. Here I am. I'm trying to do the right thing in my company. I'm trying to be a man of integrity, and I get slapped in the face and a prison cell door closed. But the story doesn't end there. The story says, But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him. The word in Hebrew is hesed. He showed him steadfast love, ESV, and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. And the chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because what? The Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. Here's a thought. Do you think that the Lord allowed Joseph to end up in prison to get him away from that woman? I mean, day after day, he's been being bombarded, and, and Joseph had to be thinking, you know what? This is never going to end. And if it does end, it's going to end really poorly. And so he gets falsely accused of raping her, but then he ends up away and he gets blessed by God. And, uh, you know, the last place that he would expect maybe the blessing of God is in the prison, but God's got it in a more way. And the prison's going to become a door to the palace. 
the prison's going to become a doorway to the palace. And God's favor was upon Joseph, and he prospered him. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. I wrote in my notes, if we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, the rest will take care of itself, or more precisely, God will take care of the rest. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word, and thank you for Joseph's courage. It's encouraging to us to see a man like this. But it does bring up all kinds of emotions and feelings, Lord. Sometimes it brings up times when we've stood strong, and we've seen your your strength come into our weakness, and, and it brings up moments when we've failed, Lord. We've fallen on our face, probably more times than once. And there's a road back, and the road back is always admission, repentance, and making things right. There's no other way. Thank you for your patience with us, Lord. We know Jesus came because we do fail. And even though Joseph is held up as this high man of integrity in the Bible, he was still human and still had his moments. But we want to learn from Joseph's story and know that we can stand strong and we need to see you for who you are, sin for what it is, and the strength and favor that you provide the child of God. You know, what we experience in Christ is not based upon performance, it's based upon your grace, but, but you are molding and shaping us into something you want us to become. And it's a man or a woman of honor, a man or a woman who dares to be a Joseph in their culture. And we'll be swimming against the tide, Lord. We live in Egypt. <laughs> We're here. And the, the uh, temptations and even the propositions are all around us. And Lord, we're just going to ask right now that you'd forgive us for the times that we have bought into Egypt's mentality. You help us to stand strong and know that even if it doesn't go the way we expect, when we do the right thing, we'll hold on. Because what they intend for evil, you work together for good. To those who love you, and are called according to your purpose. So with your heart and head bowed, just do some business with the Lord. Maybe it's just thanking him for his salvation. Maybe it's asking him for strength in a situation that you're facing. Maybe you find yourself teetering. Maybe you'd call yourself right now a house of cards. It's not going to take much for everything to go down. Draw your strength from him. That's what Joseph did. Circumstances were not great. He was not where he wanted to be geographically, but the Lord was with him in Egypt as much as he was with him in Canaan. Father, just minister to your people tonight. Thank you for your grace in our lives. If you're not a Christian, I would strongly encourage you to cry out for his mercy. You don't want to stand before this God, this holy God, one day trying to answer for all your sins. You don't want to do that. Run to Christ. That's why he came, to save you, to succeed where we've failed, to wash us in his blood, to be our great intercessor in heaven when we fall on our face. You can get back up again if you're in that situation tonight. Maybe you need to rededicate your life you don't have to have a perfect prayer, but just say, Father, I want to I come home tonight. 
I don't want to believe the lie. I don't want to go down that path of destruction. This is a word that I believe you've given to me tonight to keep me in the right direction. So whatever it is, Lord, you know your people. Just wash over them, I pray. In Jesus' holy name, amen.